You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, we've come to the end. Can you believe it? Not, not the end of all things, but uh, <laughs> although we're going to talk about the end of all things. Uh, turn, turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. Our final, our 20-week series comes to a conclusion uh, this morning. I think it's a fitting end to what we've looked at together. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, this is, uh, well, you come at the very end, but we begin something brand new Uh, Next weekend, Uh, next weekend, we're going to kick off a summer long series titled The Summer of Love, where we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13, just literally piece by piece um, and really unpack that uh, over the course of the summer. And uh, but this series, we titled this series 20 weeks ago called Origins. And the idea was to go back to the beginning, go back to the book that built our world and discover where the world's greatest ideas, what they are and where they came from. And so for a lot of us, a lot of this was, you know, elementary and it was a a refresher course. In a lot of ways, it was fresh and new. We saw some new things for sure. And uh, so we were reading five days a week. We had 100 readings and each week we'd read five, Monday through Friday, and then we'd gather together on the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, and we'd teach out of the readings. So this week, if you followed along, we read essentially the whole book of Revelation this week. And, uh, and so I've got the whole book of Revelation to teach, so we'll be done around 3.30. Hope you... <laughs> but uh, anyhow, uh, this will obviously be a, a crude overview. We, we won't be able to deep dive really into hardly anything, but that's okay. I think this is a fitting conclusion to this, uh, this series. So Revelation chapter one, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask God's blessing upon uh, us and our hearts as his word is, is distributed to us. So Father in heaven, thank you for this here, this, the, the gift of being able to gather with the liberty that we've got, still got, to, without outside interference or any encumbrance, we can, we can gather with our hearts open and freely express our faith and our love and our devotion to you. We can bring our prayers for the families of those that even this, this weekend we, we memorialize, we remember that this that we do now did come at the cost of those who paid, right, the greatest, that they gave it all. Some, yeah, so this is a gift that we should not take for granted. We should leverage, we should leverage it. We should make the most, your word says, make the most of every opportunity. And maybe the window's closing, I'm not sure. We should make the most of this. So thank you for this. Thank you that you're the good shepherd. There's only one. That you know us. You know every single person here. You know what it is that we're facing. You know what it is that we fear. You know what it is that uh, is coming around the bend. We don't. And so we just sort of posture ourselves before you 
humbly that we might hear from heaven and receive your instruction, your strength, your wisdom, your insight, a hope that is founded upon the truth to strengthen us and all God's people say, amen. amen. So we come now to our, the glorious end of this series. We, 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 we began, you remember, in the beginning. In the beginning, God. The beginning, the beginning of all things, where it all began as far as this life is concerned, with God at the helm. And you remember, we slowed down in Genesis 1 through 11. We got behind a little bit, and Genesis 1 through 11 provides what I would call a divine framework for all of human history. Here's sort of, here's life's pattern. You got, we went from creation to the fall to the flood. Man is created in his image, male, female. Uh, presented with an opportunity, just one command, right? They, they fall. And then by the time you get to Genesis chapter six, the Bible says that God sees that every inclination, every thought, everything within man is only sinful. So we've got a flood. God regrets that he makes mankind. We've got a flood. And then coming out of the flood, we're confronted with this Noahic covenant where God promises, I'll never do that again. And as a sign, he puts his rainbow that we still see from the very beginning to this day as a, as a sign of the covenant that he made with mankind. It was unilateral. It doesn't have anything to do with you. I just promised that I'm never going to do that again. Well, then you read through the, the, the passage, the, the divine account, and, and the way that man responds, the way that mankind responds to like a million rainbows and God's goodness is with the first global attempt to rival, remove, and replace them at Babel, the Tower of Babel. If you're paying attention, it does appear that mankind is once again fast approaching another movement, another sort of uh, desire to the same end. Uh, globalism is the thing that we hear from all the world's leaders. It's their agenda. If you are, I hope you're aware, it, it sounds pretty and everyone's going to hold hands and we're going to walk through the bushes, you know, picking flowers together. But listen, globalism is no friend of truth, no friend of Jesus, no friend of the church. Clearly, this transgender movement, which showed up on the scene here in the last like six seconds of human history, Together with this thing that showed up in the last half second is this AI, this artificial intelligence. Listen, when men can choose to make of themselves whatever they'd like with the aid of this kind of sort of raw power in the artificial intelligence, the, the idea in the end is that man will have no need of God. You remember, and that's the goal. That is, at the end, you have to understand, that is the goal. Remember, I played here a clip of Yuval Harari. He's Klaus Schwab's right-hand man, sort of the de facto leader of this global movement. And Yuval Harari, a Jew no less, literally says, soon we will make men gods. And he goes, I don't mean this metaphorically. We're going to make men gods. Folks, that is Babel all over again. That's a 21st century remix of, of the heart and the spirit of Babel. We will remove, we will rival, we will replace God. We don't want him, you see. And so the questions remain, many deep questions remain, like will God tolerate it this time? Remember in Genesis, essentially man again only has one clear command. This is before the giving of the law. 
And he goes to mankind after it says, now spread out over the whole earth, be fruitful and multiply. And then led by a man by the name Nimrod. Do not name your child Nimrod. (laughs) Nimrod, this great conqueror, he said, no, no, here's what we'll do. We will basically say, no, thank you. We're going to park it right here. We'll park here in the plain of Shinar. Shinar. We'll We'll make a name for ourselves. We'll build a great tower all the way up. No. And God looks on and says what? If mankind united together in their rebellion will do this, whoa. So in, a, in another gracious, kind move, God comes down, confuses their language, and spreads it. And like, he's like, I'll tolerate this for so long, but in the end, this is going to be utterly destructive. No. So we wonder, because we're heading in this very same place, will he tolerate it again? Will he, will he rival it? Will he revival it, we might say? Could he send a revival to, to thwart such an idea? Or do we approach, folks, uh, the end of the world as we know it? Now, we do know this from Scripture. God trumped, and this was one of the fascinating insights, God trumped man's first global attempt to rival, remove, and replace him, and therefore the truth, with nationalism. You remember that? In the, in the uh, Genesis chapter nine, that I will make a name for ourselves. Disobey God, not be fruit, not spread out all over the place. We'll consolidate here, build a tower up to heaven. We'll make our name great. God's like, you know what? I see, I see your global attempt, and I'll, I'll. You ever? I don't, I don't know if you ever did this. This things that kids used to do. But you ever see someone riding on a bicycle and try to stick a stick in their spokes? God's like, you guys want to go global? I got an idea. And he takes takes an idea, nationalism, and he sticks it in the spokes of their globalism. In chapter 12, he comes to a man by the name of Abram, who's not trying to make his name great. And he goes, I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so we know that that's how God responded once. Additionally, we know from Daniel's one of Daniel's great visions and uh, the book of Revelation that in the end, another great attempt will come. In the end, this is, this is why we wonder, where are we right now in the grand scheme of things? Because in the end, there will be another global attempt. There'll be a one world government, a one world religion, a new world, quote unquote, God, the Antichrist, he'll arise. Uh, there'll be a one world currency. If you're paying attention, we're heading for that really fast. And at some point, this rival God, the Antichrist, will have power and authority to kill anyone who doesn't receive this mysterious mark, Revelation chapter 13. And those who don't receive this mark as a symbol of their allegiance to him, this false God, they will not be able to buy or sell. Something that none of us could have imagined until the last three years. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Have we not learned in the last three years just how possible it is that one can be barred from civil society like this, simply in this case, because they didn't agree with the so-called vaccine. It's really interesting. But according to both Daniel and John in his revelation, speaking of this final world attempt, global attempt, you remember in Daniel's prophecy, we read about a stone cut without hands. 
just as a stone cut without hands would rival these kingdoms of gold and silver and bronze and iron. And remember this? And this stone cut without hands will crush the final global demonic attempt to upstage God. Remember, in the beginning, God trumped that um, dark idea with his idea of nationhood, nationalism. We might, even, we might even say patriotism. An idea that's now strangely a dirty word, unless your country's Ukraine. And then you can be a nationalist and not be sinful. It's interesting. You can't love God and your country because loving your country, even to me, many evangelicals, is tantamount to idolatry. And so if you, if you love your country and you fly the American flag, you're a gross idolater. But somehow, if you post the Ukrainian flag in all your social media accounts, you're like ultra-righteous. The Ukrainian flag is nothing more than a new mask. It's just a way to symbol that you, it's, it's, it's a virtue signaling thing that says we're better than you and especially you, cr you Christian people with your old outdated obsolete, you're in the way. So, so why can you not love your country here but you can fly the Ukrainian flag and love that one? Why? Church, why? Because folks, this country is the cog in the globalist machinery. We're the sand in their gears. Why, and I'm, I'm past caring any longer, listen, why people believe that this is not the place to be able to deal with the things that we're facing in society as if somehow, that is insanity. It's insanity. It's a disservice. So the question I think then for us is, is God going to give us Ninevite treatment or Sodom and Gomorrah treatment? Remember Nineveh? They were barbaric. I mean, they were brutal. More, in fact, they were, in a sense, far worse than we might say Sodom and Gomorrah. But God sends revival to the Ninevites and smokes Sodom and Gomorrah. And I, I honestly don't know what it is that's coming our way. And we are altogether corrupt like both Sodom, Gomorrah, and Nineveh. We were once a city set on a hill, and now we're the biggest exporters of everything that God hates. So are we going to get revival or are we going to get judgment? I, I don't know. The final verdict, of course, is yet to be seen. Now, regardless of what happens to us, and by the us, I mean the United States, and again, it does matter. Here's the big picture of God's grand story. And it's good to back up and get the big picture. And if I can say it this way, here's the big picture. We are, the church is, every single child of God is God's billboard all over the face of the planet, which basically says this. No matter what happens in the end, our end is just a glorious beginning. And in the end, God wins. That, that's the billboard. You, wherever you go, you're that billboard. So God has a plan. It's a triumphant plan. It's an unassailable plan. It's an unfolding plan. And without fail, God's adversary, uh, the devil and mine, our adversary, his, he ever works to thwart God's unthwartable plan. So we say, and rightly so, that it's going to get a whole lot darker before it gets light. But it's just this. And this is critical to understand what you read in the book of Revelation. It's just this. Many of us aren't sure who's going to be responsible for the darkness that's coming. 
folks, our adversary and God's adversary can do dark quite well. His favorite color is black. But listen, listen to me, pay careful attention. Nobody can do dark like God can do dark. Some of you are clapping like, this is heavy. I mean, and, I, and it's true, meaning this. The book of Revelation contains and concludes with, I'm talking a brilliant radiance. It, it, listen, if you want to do good to yourself, go read Revelation 20 and 21 this afternoon and then look yourself in the mirror. I mean, it is radiant. In, in the eternal state, and we'll get there at some point this morning, there is no sun. The Christ himself is the sun. There's no night. I mean, the end is so gloriously bright. But listen to me. That glorious, incomparable brightness, that radiance will come to this earth only after God has brought upon it an incomparable darkness, devastation, death, and judgment. Listen, it's not that in the end, God's uneclipsable light is gonna crush the devil's Light, which is true for sure. Here's the deal. In the end, it will only be God's light that can extinguish God's darkness. And it'll only be God's mercy that can triumph over God's judgment, you see. And his judgment is coming. Now, some of you are like, I invited my friend this morning. Holy smokes. You know, <laughs> I should, why, you know, I should, you know, <laughs> I mean, literally, hellfire and brimstone. And we're going to get there. We're actually going to get there, hellfire and brimstone. We're not even there yet, but I'm telling you, we're going to read it. So that's the bad news. <laughs> but listen to me. You ready? But the bad news did not, does not apply to those who have received the good news because God's good news trumps God's bad news. Amen? That is powerful. So all of human history, and that's essentially from Genesis to Revelation, what we, we get insight into, divine insight, transcendent insight into this world that we're living is, can be found within the pages of this book, Genesis to Revelation. But all of human history unfolds that some within it, you and me, we may find our place in God's greater, more glorious, grander story. I hope you have. We're committed to it here. We have been for 23 years, helping people find their place in the beautiful, majestic, winsome, unassailable story of God. And if you haven't found your place in God's story, maybe today will we be uh, one step or one part or even that moment. But nevertheless, that's a long introduction <laughs> and otherwise kind of dark. But only so that the light that's coming will shine all the brighter. So I've got God's divine bookend, Genesis, Revelation, before me, before us. Um, and I want to look briefly at the beginning of, of the end, so to speak, the beginning of the book of Revelation. Then we're going to go to our glorious end and see uh, if we can't learn a little bit more on our way out of this series of the world's greatest ideas. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this can only be a broad treatment of the book of Revelation, right? So I ask for your forgiveness in advance. So let's jump in, wrap it up. Our glorious end, that's what I've titled this talk. Revelation chapter 1-1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw, 
Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Now, I want to point three things out here just quickly. Number one, notice the book is titled Revelation and not Revelations. And a singular, not plural. And I tell you that because I'm the kind of guy that if we're having lunch together and you've got spinach in your teeth, I won't let you go the rest of the day like that. Like, I'm going to make sure that I love you enough to go, you want to get that out of your teeth. And for the child of God to call the book a revelation, revelations is worse than spinach in your teeth. So if you're out on the street and you're like, I was at Calvary Chapel and we studied revelations, don't tell them you're at Calvary Chapel. I, I, I'm not going to claim you. <laughs> Yes, the book contains revelations of many things indeed, but its central and main theme and character, of course, is there's one supreme revelation, the revelation of Jesus. The apocalypsis in the original language means an unveiling or, or a making known. It, it's as if, you know, when there's, uh, before we tore all of our statues down, when there were statues and you wanted, to, you wanted to have this gathering, right? There'd be a sheet over it and then you'd, you'd unveil the one beautiful thing. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's an unveiling of one supreme thing and that one supreme thing is him, Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, number one. Number two, notice it's a revelation which God gave to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. The idea there that John uh, records and has in mind it isn't that from the time that the revelation is given until these things unfold, it's going to be a very, very short time because this revelation was given 2,000 years ago. But what he means here is when what's to unfold begins to unfold, it will all happen quite quickly, rapidly, swiftly, and sadly, We've kind of, we all now have a little bit of a new framework to understand this better. Aren't we all looking at one another right now and going like, dude, the stuff we're facing today has happened so quickly. Like this has all happened so fast. Like how this happened so, how did it turn into such a mess so fast? And the idea is that, you've heard the saying, you know, it happened so slowly and then all of a sudden. And that's the way it feels right now, doesn't it? Well, when it all unfolds, this things, the things that we see here in the book of Revelation, it will unfold rapidly. By the way, um, I, I taught uh, this book, oh, it might be 20 years ago, and I'll just confess that when you get to chapter 6 to chapter 19, it is all wrath. So just put yourself in my shoes for a second. Good morning, class. How are you? Week one. This is the... God is about ready to open up an entire can of heavenly whoop tail on humanity, right? So everyone smile, and then it's week two, and then week three, and then week four. Like, you're nine weeks into wrath, and people are like, you can see people like, you know, they're walking into church, like, oh, you know? and I'm teaching like, and now, you know, it's just like, wow. But here's what's interesting. From Genesis, Revelation 6 to 19, there are basically 21 different events that, folks, you think a pandemic just happened? A third of the earth's population is going to disappear. 
I mean, it is going to be it is going to be a seal after a bowl after a trumpet, a seal after a bowl after. I mean, it is going to be a dizzying. It, it, listen, this darkness will make anything that the adversary has done look like elementary school coloring. It is going to be horrific, and we're all going like where? I mean, all the it's all madness right now. It is going to be that times a million. And then finally notice the last few words there of verse three, for the time is near. And I note that now as a segue to what I wanna highlight next, namely, namely a timeline of in things. And I wanna, I'm gonna ask you to sort of set that aside for a second, a timeline of in things, because we're gonna get one, I believe. And then we'll come back to it. But pick up real quick John's introduction. Here, John introduces this. Revelation this way. He says in verse four, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. John wrote this vision. It was meant. In fact, those seven churches will be directly addressed. addressed, Chapter two and chapter three. And we'll see exactly who these seven churches were in a moment. Then notice his introduction. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So John's introduction contains an insight into the triune nature of God. Notice, um, grace and peace to you from him, God the Father. He is was and is to come. The Holy Spirit, it says here, um, the seven spirits before the throne. If you, you can cross-reference uh, Isaiah eleven two, and you see that the Holy Spirit is sort of seven in manifestation, spirit of wisdom, spirit of revelation, spirit of knowledge of him, spirit of the fear of the Lord. You can see that. So he, this Holy Spirit isn't seven. Seven is the number of completion so that you get the full uh, panorama or scope of the Holy Spirit's work before the throne, and then the Son. Jesus, the Son, the faithful witness of who God is, right? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the firstborn from among the dead, speaking of his resurrection from the grave, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now hit verse eight, check this out. And real quick, how many of you in your Bible right now, when you get to verse eight, the letters turn red? Anybody else, you see that? Yeah, it's interesting, and it's accurate, meaning this is John's introduction but seemingly, while John introduces Jesus, Jesus just steps in and goes, I'll take over for a second. And he begins to speak. And he says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Two notable things here. Number one, Jesus just used the title that John just used for God the Father, and Jesus just used it for himself, which can only be accurate if Jesus is in fact God, and he is. Secondly, and this is, when he gets to the part where he says, I'm the almighty, the almighty. Uh, David Guzik has an insight on this. I've got it here on the screen. It says the almighty. The, The word almighty translates the ancient Greek word pantocrator, which literally means the one who has his hand on everything. That's what the word means. The one who has his hand on everything. 
It speaks of the great sovereign control of Jesus over everything, past, present, and future. Church, isn't it a great comfort to know that it's our Savior's hand who is over everything? He's the one who's got his hand on everything. And that, that's significant, especially when you read about what's to unfold in the book of Revelation in time to come. But isn't it, more, isn't it a beautiful personal comfort to know that everything extends beyond like sort of global governments and, you know, uh, world struggles to your struggles and my struggles to what we face? Every, I mean, God's hand is sovereign. He's the one who has his hand on everything, even your life and my life. Now, Jump down to verse 18, and we're going to pick up the idea that I, I said, table it for a second, that the time is near. Uh, from verse 8 to 18, John tells his audience what was happening in his life, what, what was his current uh, context in which the revelation came. He says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, uh, which is a great way to come to church in the Spirit. And when he, received, when he received this revelation, he sees one like the Son of Man standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. And it, this isn't a menorah. This is seven individual lampstands with a fire upon it. And in the right hand of the one among the midst are seven stars. He's going to tell us exactly what that mystery is in, in, in a moment. And then he has, and I, we won't unpack it now, he has this glorious vision of Christ. And he, he describes it the best he can in the most breathtaking language. And then this one that he sees, the one that's in the midst, speaks. And he says this, I'm he who lives, was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. We know that's Jesus. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you've seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So he claims to hold the keys to Hades and death, which will get significant a little bit more, a, a little later, it, it, among other things, it's quite significant. But then notice he commands them to write the things which you've seen. Like right here, this, revel this glorious vision of Christ among the churches. Then the things that are, and that'll, that'll be chapter 2 and 3 when literally he addresses all seven churches. And then the things which will take place after this. By the way, many Bible commentators believe that the seven stars in the right hand of Christ were the seven pastors of those local fellowships. Never really considered myself much of a star, but anyhow, I'm just telling you, like, what are the stars? Angels of the seven churches. You're like, no, they're angels. Yes, some believe they were, that each church has sort of a, I'm not sure, but nevertheless, um, the seven lampstands are clearly a representation of the church, right? A lampstand simply just holds a light that isn't its own. And Christ is in the midst of a church that holds a light that isn't its own, right? Well, then he says, so write the things that you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. We might say after what? Well, those things that will take place after those things that concern the church then. Many believe, and I'm one, that 
Verse 19 is an outline given to us from none other than Jesus on how to interpret and understand what follows the things regarding the church. We, we could then outline um, Revelation this way. You can outline the book of Revelation in three sections. Section one is chapter one, the things which you've seen. Christ glorified, Christ in the midst of the churches, Christ holding in his right hand the seven stars. Section two is chapter two and three. Those were the things that were then, the things that are, that relate to the seven churches. Christ addressing, his literal address to every church. And then section three, you can get chapter four through 22, things that must take place after these things, after the things that you heard in chapter two and chapter three. Now, I believe that after these things has a certain church age vantage point, meaning that when you get to chapter four, the church is no longer on the earth. It's gone via this thing called the rapture. The rapture is a translation of living saints to meet Christ in the air, which is significant. So I've told you that this would be broad, it would be crude. Uh, I've got the entire revelation before me, so a very, very broad and basic beginning to what I'd call our glorious end. So now let's jump forward to the end itself to see how this plays out and maybe, maybe tie up some of the loose ends that I just presented. Chapter 20, verse one, John writes, then I saw an angel coming down from, the, from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and he shut him up and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Stop there real quick. I want you just to notice, what is the MO? What is the strategy? What is the supreme objective or goal or work of the devil? This old dragon who's saying, what does he do? He does what to the nations? He does what to the nations? Yeah, and what is the greatest uh, defense to his deception? Yeah. Folks, this is not the time to put this bad boy down. This is the time to get this thing out. The truth always is the solution to deception, you see. Now, something else you need to point out, and I'm sorry I get a kick out of this and I'm just twisted this way, but I want you to notice, and listen, if you have in your mind still that this spiritual war that we're a part of is, is like, it's true, it's the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness and it's God against the devil. That in a sense is true. But if you think that like the devil is like the yin and the yang to God, like his exact opposite equal and we're all biting our nails like, oh my gosh, how is this thing gonna end? Listen, when God wants to cast Satan, the great dragon into the pit, he just grabs one angel that's like off in the corner with a broom and goes, you go, you go take care of that. And so the one angel puts his broom down, grabs a chain. He was unlocking the gym so we could all play up there in heaven. He takes the chain. He grabs the serpent like you'd carry a rat. One angel from heaven and goes, there you go, you're done. He, God doesn't be like, oh, I gotta get ready for this. I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to handle it. It's gonna, it's gonna be, what are we gonna do? No, he's like, hey, hey, uh, Clarence, go get, uh, go, get, go get the devil and put him in a hole. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, y'all. This is the stuff that happens in my head. 
<laughs> I'm sometimes driving home from church, scratching my head like, why do you do these things? So an angel comes down from heaven, not God. He takes the dragon, the serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, throws him into a bottomless pit, sets a seal on him, and, and then he says, but, but after these things, after this thousand years, he must be released for a little while. And John goes, and I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded or executed for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. And this isn't a representative group of folks that, um, this isn't a group that represents anyone throughout all the history of, of uh, the world that died in faith as a martyr, but we're told specifically who these martyrs are. Notice, he says, they had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we move from something that uh, is large and in a sense controversial as this doctrine called the rapture of the church to another thing called the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. Now, some believe that it's a literal reign. Some like Charles Spurgeon, I actually believe the same. Many don't. Many don't believe in a literal reign of Christ for a thousand years upon the earth. Some believe that right now we're in the millennial reign of Jesus. Like, if this is his millennial reign, then you got to talk to him about that because it ain't going real good. Nevertheless, many also believe that the church will go through the Great Tribulation, that uh, the Old Testament titles Jacob's Trouble, which has a distinctly Jewish nature to it. The great tribulation of the book of Revelation is that darkness that I told you, that when God does dark, nobody does dark like God does. And it is, it is specifically when God comes and deals with Israel quite harshly because she refused her Messiah and a Christ-rejecting world. It's gonna be a very different kind of trouble. And you must understand when you think about whether or not the church will be present in the middle of that, who, who's responsible for the tribulation? Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation from the devil and from the darkness and even from your own flesh, but not that tribulation. This isn't tribulation, this is the great tribulation, which has a distinctly, I would say, uh, Jewish nature to it. But nevertheless, it's when God's gonna deal with Israel and a Christ-rejecting world. And because there are those that are executed in the midst of this time, or actually, we might even say at the end, of uh, this time so that from there we have a thousand year reign of Jesus. They believe that uh, the church must be present. Well, we know that some saints will deal with that harsh moment. 
So the question then is, and some of the words I'm about ready to use, some of you will understand them, some of you won't, some of, them will, some of you will understand what I'm about to say, you won't agree, some of you will understand what I'm about to say and you will agree. But when you talk, this first resurrection, blessed and he, blessed and holy is he who has a part of the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. If this resurrection, the first, the first resurrection is a singular event, then this would argue, and strongly, that the church would actually go through the great tribulation. If this first resurrection is what some would call a class or ordered resurrection, then it lends credence to a pre-tribulational view as far as the church is concerned. Let me unpack this for a second. Let me see if I can work you through the way that I see this. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is writing about Christ, and, and he says this. Paul says, when he ascended on high, we know that's Jesus, he led, when he did, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Later, he talks about the fact that one of the gifts that he gave to men or to the church is the apostle, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher, the evangelist. He's, but he doesn't leave us like when he ascended on high, he led captivity. So he goes, I'm not going to, I won't leave it undefined. He says, now this ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended first or first descended into the lower parts of the earth. You see. First Peter chapter 3 is a great reference. You can see there that there's this interesting scene where Christ actually preaches the gospel to spirits that were disobedient in another generation. How many of you grew up in a, in, a, in, a, in a church setting where you recited publicly or corporately the Apostles' Creed? Yeah, I, I did for a while. I, my, I grew up largely in a Southern Baptist church, but my, I was in a Presbyterian church for a while and um, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. He, the third day he descended into hell. And I was like, I would always sit there and go, Jesus went to hell? What? Well, let's just take a look. You don't have to look at the verse again, but when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. If we take that to literally, well then, when Christ ascended, when Christ resurrected and ascended, who did he take to heaven with him? I love this. You guys are just like the last class. You're like, I don't have any idea. Who did he take with him? Yeah, Old Testament saints. Old Testament saints. Uh, what did Jesus say? No man comes to the Father except through me. So where did David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and uh, Jeremiah, and where did they go when they died before the cross? You remember the story in Luke chapter 16? It's a story, not a parable, and there's a difference between a parable and a story. Parables aren't true everyday life stories. They're just, you know, uh, it's just a story that has a spiritual truth. Well, a, that's a parable. A story, and one of the differences, one of the ways you can tell the difference is in a parable, you never, you never get a certain man, right? You never get someone's proper name. Well, in Luke chapter 16, you remember the story about the rich man and the beggar named Lazarus? Remember this story? And every day, there was this poor Lazarus who all he got in life was the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. 
Lazarus had faith, the rich man did not. The Bible, the story goes on to say, Jesus told the story, that in time when they died, Lazarus died, he was carried by the angels to a place called Abraham's bosom, Hades. Remember, Christ is the one who has the keys to Hades and death. And you remember later, the rich man dies, not in faith. And you remember what happens? He's in the same place, but not really in the same place. You remember that? And, and, and the rich man says, Lazarus, Lazarus, oh my God. Hey, hey, if you could just dip your finger in a little cool water and put it in my tongue because I'm in agony over here in this fire. And what did, what, did, what did Lazarus say? I can't. There's a chasm between us. And so I can't go to you and you can't come to me. Okay, okay then, but please send somebody back to tell my neighbors and my friends and my family and what did he say? Even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe. So when he ascended and he leapt, kept Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He's, he's given me the ability to preach liberty to the captives, the setting, the setting of the free of the captives. Today, Abraham's bosom's empty, folks. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're home. That's the first part of the resurrection. The second phase of the resurrection, I submit, is when the church is taken from this place, when living saints are raptured, they are brought from a living state, literally they're caught up, the word is in the original language, to meet the Lord in the air. The Bible, Paul wrote to the before God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting, the church didn't reject Christ, on a Christ-rejecting, truth-hating, God-hating, anti-Christ-loving world. That's not the church. So Paul wrote, for God has not appointed us to wrath, and that's what you find in Revelation, wrath, divine wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, there's this group here in Revelation who come to faith in the midst of the tribulation and they so stand for their faith that they're slaughtered. So first resurrection will be where all of the redeemed will rule and reign with Christ on the earth for a little th literal thousand years. Now, if you say that's not my view, I say hold your view as tightly as you'd like. I'll hold my view as tightly as I'd like. And then when it all happens, we'll see who's right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, this is not a this is not a divis, this isn't an issue to divide over. L last night at the four o'clock service, a dear friend of mine who's written a book on Revelation disagrees with me sharply, and I, we looked at one another and smiled. And he goes, "I know you were talking about me and the saying, I mean, we're the ones who don't agree." And I say, "Yeah, we don't agree. That's okay. I love you. You love me. We'll find out at the end. I mean, if you want to go through the tribulation, that's fantastic. Have fun." Uh, no. <laughs> No, how it all, listen, how it all unfolds, I, I, I don't know. I do not know. Uh, but nevertheless, here, okay, get past all of that. Let me just tell you, here's the, here's the profound good news. Anyone who has a part of the first resurrection, the second death has no power over. That right there is worth its weight in gold. That, that's the stuff you go, now, I'm not sure if you know what the second death is yet. We're going to read about it specifically, but listen to me, folks. It is, a, it is a horrific terror. You may have heard me say before, every man is either, every soul is either born twice and dies once 
or as, or, or as, listen, you are born once and you die twice. And the second death, mm, that's why Jesus said you must be born again. You need a new birth to beat the second death. Okay? Revelation 21. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Some of you are like, no, no. Pastor Kenny's like, what? I don't even want to, I don't know if I even want to go to heaven if there's not an ocean there. You won't be thinking about it. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will, God will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and their God. And God will wipe away every tear, every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it's done on the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I'll be his God and he'll be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So following the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, where he fulfills, listen, piles of yet fulfilled Old Testament prophecies that one day literally someone would sit upon the throne that we, we celebrate this every, every Christmas, right? Unto us a son is born. Unto us a child is given. Or a child is given, a son is born. The government it will be upon his shoulder, right? And, and of his kingdom there shall be no, no end. So following Jesus' millennial reign where piles of yet unfulfilled prophecy. And by the way, it, it's so interesting. You, you cannot understand the book of Revelation without a good, healthy knowledge of the Old Testament. The imagery is almost exclusively Old Testament. And so again, for like the fifth time I've said in this series alone, those that would say today that the church of Jesus Christ does not need the Old Testament uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And when Paul, when, when Paul wrote that to Timothy, the only Bible he had in mind was the Old Testament. You see. So following that glorious reign, there's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a glory, our glory, no more tears. God himself will wipe away every tear. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death forever. God will be our home. Heaven's new realm, as I mentioned earlier, there'll be no day. There won't be, their day will be eclipsed by his light, right? The sun, the sun will pale in comparison to who he is. There will be no longer any night. It's gonna be a glorious day forever and ever and ever again. But notice, there's a list 
of people, souls, brothers and sisters, your moms and dads, your coworkers. There's a group that will not enter into that glorious day. And what is what it to me is profoundly insightful, and I've never seen it this way before, is who it is that God says tops the list. Read it again, verse 8. But the what? Look at the list. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Hey, I saw this in a startling new way in the last three years, but not only did common sense vacate the church, but so did courage. Folks, but we just went through that was just a dress rehearsal for what's coming. And I got to say, not y'all, of course, but I got to say, and you too, when you surveyed the landscape of the Church of Jesus Christ, right, in the West, cowardly. I said last week, James did in so many words, listen, folks, if our faith cannot produce the kind of courage that it takes to stand in the face of men, it is not likely going to give us the courage one day we're going to need to face God Almighty. So when the next, that ain't ever going to happen, happens again, what are you going to do? Yeah, man. We got to stand up. We've got to stand. We got to stand firm. We got to stand strong. We gotta, we gotta stand in the face of that kind of tyranny. And then Jesus says, and this is gonna mean something to some of you in a way that is gonna be so profound, but Jesus says, behold, former things have passed away and I make all things new. I'm only... I'm only telling this story publicly because I'm getting ready to cheat on my son a little bit because you'll understand why. But uh, some months ago, my 17-year-old son, Quinn, he got a speeding ticket. And it wasn't just a little, like, oopsie. I mean, you know, it's like, if you're going to get a ticket, man, you got a ticket with a capital T, ticket. <laughs> and uh, so we had to go to court, right? And we're in court a couple months ago. And uh, Quinn Ramsour, yes, sir, he stands up, approaches the bench. Is there a father here? Me. <laughs> I'm here. It's glad to be here with my obedient son. <laughs> and, he, and, the, and the judge goes, how old are you, sir? I'm 17. And he says, uh, son, this is, a, this is a ticket. I mean, this isn't a little ticket. This is a ticket. And he's like, so here's what I'm going to do. Um, it's your first offense. I'm going to send you to this class. And uh, you go to that class in the next so-and-so period. You bring your paperwork afterwards, and we'll, we'll set this whole thing aside. No problem. Sunday night, my son says, hey, Dad, class is tomorrow. Well, when we left the courthouse, we read that the parent has to attend the class. <laughs> I do not want to sit in an all-day driving class. It gets better. It wasn't an all-day driving class. It was a two-hour class for people that have been arrested for DUI. So I'm like, okay, here's the deal. 
I can't go into that class. You know what I'm saying? Like I go into the DUI class. Hey, Pastor Frank, how you doing? Like, I didn't, I wasn't even, I didn't, I, wanna, I only had one beer. No, I mean, I mean, I promise. No, so I'm like, we're, we're in the wrong class. This is a total mistake. We, we shouldn't be in the class. We, I, we, he, didn't, he, he didn't have a DUI. I didn't have a DUI. We don't need to be in the DUI class. Like, I, it, it's at a local church. The class is at a local church. No. So uh, there's 40 people in the class, and I'm like, I, I, we, we shouldn't be in the class. So I stay out. I'm waiting for the instructor to show up, see if I could catch him or her on the who. Before the thing, before I got to go in the class, I'm like, hi. I, your sweet lady comes up. Are you the teacher? Yeah, I'm the teacher. I say, hey, look, we're, uh, I, maybe there's a mistake, because I've read the paperwork on what the class is, and it's about those who've been arrested for, have gotten in trouble for a DUI, my son, nor me. She goes, no, you need to hear this. And I go, no, no, really? <laughs> Can I sit outside? Can I stay outside the class? I mean, I got a lot of work to do. Can I not be in the class? She goes, no, you need to be a part of the class. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, let's go to the DUI class. <laughs> so this sweet woman is there to teach the class that our choices have consequences and she is there by the state and I, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good move on the state's part with full faith as a very, very solid woman of faith but she tells the story about her, her one and only son being murdered by a drunk driver. Tells the whole thing. I mean, she unpacks it for an hour, right? Here's his life. And it, I, I, my, she was, she, she gave her first child up for adoption because she got pregnant out of wedlock. Then she found out that she had complications. She was never going to be pregnant. She thought, I don't understand, Lord. I mean, she tells this whole thing. It's very transparent. I'm never going to have a child. I get the one, one baby. I, I chose to do the right thing. And now I'm un unable to bear children. Long story short, she gets a phone call from her church, and her church says, hey, there's a young lady in the church. She's, she's going she, she's gonna to go through with her pregnancy, but would you like this little child there? She's like, absolutely. Interesting enough, that mama went into labor on the very same date that she gave her little baby away, her first baby, nine years later. So she shows us this precious child and his life, and he was a baseball player and the whole bit. And then she says it was my husband's birthday. We were down in Dalton. And we got a phone call in the middle of the evening that there had been an accident. We needed to come to the hospital. It's my husband's birthday. We're driving from Dalton to Cleveland. And we took a bit of a short way home. And we got a call from the hospital. And the, the, the doctor said one of the, no one would tell the mother what had happened because they weren't sure that she was the real mom. So she's left completely on the hook. She gets another phone call from the hospital and they said, well, where are you coming Come from Dalton? What road are you on? We're on this road. And they said, you need to turn off that road and go another way because that's the road where the accident happened and they didn't want her to go see what had happened. She gets to the hospital. She finds out that her son is gone. And she sort of closes like this. Um, Mother's Day sucks because that was the only child I had. The young lady who 
killed her son was three times the legal limit with methamphetamines. The cops were at her house in the middle of a domestic dispute. The mother's, the father of these two 21-month-old babies, they were in a fight. Father was gone. Cops got her settled down. Her mother showed up. And then after the cops left, her and her mother got in a fight. Her mother left. And then she left her two 21-month-old kids in the house, pulled out of her neighborhood, and went for four miles in the wrong direction down the street against traffic for four miles. The son was coming home. They've literally got the video. The last video that she's got is she got a, he got a phone call from his girlfriend saying, pick up some bacon or whatever. I'll make breakfast for you in the morning. And they got the picture of him walking through the Walmart parking lot. And that's the last she ever sees of him. She, she gets in his car, folks, just like any of us could get in our car, our car today. And he's coming up, up, over, and around the deal. She's going 75. He's going 45. He's gone. Mother's Day is a nightmare every year. This is 13 years ago. Father's Day is a nightmare every year. My husband's birthday, we don't even celebrate any longer because the kid died on the birthday. For six years, we didn't even put up a Christmas tree. So she just begins to sort of lament, right? And she says, these are the things that I never, this never happened and this never happened. I never got to see this. I never got to, and it was I've just been reading this passage and I'm thinking, you know what? One day, the Lord who can restore all the years the locusts have eaten, the stuff you didn't get, that all the relationship, all the smiles, all the laughter, all that was meant to be, all that was meant to be, one day got all the old things, the old things are gonna pass away and God's gonna make everything new. It's something to look forward to, folks. Some of you have broken relationships. You're sure they're never going to be restored. That's why our faith matters. Let me leave you real quick with these precious words. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. There's likely some somebody's here who have had the very same situation happen in my heart. I mean, I, I just want you to know it's what a heaven's for, folks. And it is glorious. We're just going to have to wait a bit. In my father's house, he said to his troubled disciples, are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can, how can we know the way? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. It's been stated long before me. It's not my insight, but I like it. If this earth is what God can do in six days, and this place is majestic, is it not? Don't you want to see what he's been working on for a couple millennia? <laughs> There's so much to look forward to. Amen. Father in heaven, we love you. Hear us as we close briefly in a song of reflection. Lord, touch those here that just needed to hear that this morning. 
that the stuff that's broken one day, you're the, you're the, one, who, you're the one who brings, well, beauty from the ash heap. You're the one who can bring glory out of the most gruesome experience. There's coming a day when you're going to make everything new and everything that wasn't will be for your glory and our good. And we love you for it because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Frank Ramsour. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor Frank's ministry by visiting calvarychat.com. That's calvary, C-H-A-T-T dot com.